Welcome to the Deaf Studies Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the breadth and diversity of voices in and around the academic field of Deaf Studies. With your hosts, Dr. Renske Visser and Dr. Bethan Michael Fox. Let's get started. Happy New Year, Renske. Happy, happy New Year, Beth. Welcome to 2024. Exciting to be going into another podcast year with you. We've got a couple of quick updates for you from the podcasting front. So first of all, a huge thank you to any of you who've been able to support us by buying merchandise or donating through the Kofi. Kofi, Kofi, we never know how to say it. We've utilized some of that money to purchase some software, which is enhancing the sound. So hopefully you're having a more enhanced sound experience. And we're also back editing every episode. So that's been super fun and time consuming, but also uh, really interesting seeing how it kind of works and doesn't work. So I think I've probably got like 15 left to go, but they're pretty much all going to be done. So that's our New Year's gift to you. And Renska, you've got a couple of other updates. Yes. Yeah, so in December last year, uh, I was very fortunate to have been invited to a conference at Umeå University in Sweden. Moa Eriksson, very kindly, and I'm saying that in such an English way, invited me to present at a conference that was like celebrating all kinds of work around digital humanities and the future of humanities. And Moa, I think we'll definitely get her on the podcast in the future because she researches uh, media studies and especially is looking at TikTok and memes and social media and grief on TikTok and platforms. I don't even know how to use and how they work. Thanks again, Moa. It was the three days were super inspiring. And also for anyone listening, if you want us to come to your conference in your area or want us to talk about the podcast, uh, we can do workshops about the podcast. When I was talking there, I've received lots of lovely feedback as well. And we've been receiving lots of nice messages on social media as well. So that has been super, super nice. We've had some really nice emails from people saying that they've connected with guests after listening to episodes. And that's really heartwarming and nice as well. We have two audio clips for you this month that have been sent in by listeners. The first is from an independent scholar called Corinne, who's going to talk to you about a project that they've been working on with Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And the second clip is about a book, a new book that's out called Everyday Armageddon's Stories and Reflections on Death, Dying, God and Waste. So here we go with those. Hello to all the Death Studies podcast listeners. I'm Corinne Alicona and I'm the Education Manager at Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And for the past two years, I've been working on a research project that deals with cemeteries and the revived interest they've been receiving as community green spaces. This research, as well as participation in Mount Auburn's Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging Task Force, led me to create a report and present it at the Death and Its Spaces panel at the annual CCAC conference in Richmond, Virginia this past October. As cemeteries begin to welcome an array of art installations and public programs to engage the broader community, equity issues come to the forefront. The demographics of cemetery visitors, once predominantly familial, are now diversifying and mirroring the dynamics of the growing communities around them. With this shift, cemeteries face the challenge of ensuring equitable representation, 
outreach and engagement, acknowledging the historical biases and exclusions that might have shaped past interactions with these spaces. Mount Auburn Cemetery's continuous cycles from private resting place for the departed to communal space has introduced a tension between the desires of visitors and the expectations of lot owners. Visitors seek active engagement, community events, and artistic expressions within the cemetery's expanse. Contrastingly, lot owners bound by personal sentiments and connections often hold different perspectives, valuing the cemetery's tranquility and solemnity. Navigating this intricate landscape requires careful consideration of the diverse motivations and expectations that converge within the cemetery's boundaries. In my interviews with various stakeholders at Mount Auburn, a recurrent theme that continually emerged was the stark juxtaposition of Mount Auburn as a place that holds emotional extremes simultaneously. The melancholy and reverence of remembrance, but also the celebration of life. It was mentioned that perhaps balance is not the correct word to describe the desired outcome, so as to not erase these emotional depths, uh, but rather harmony is a term that was preferred. Could we nurture the opposing elements of Mount Auburn's emotional landscape in material reality through thoughtful and deliberate landscape design? A well-thought-out landscape featuring designated spaces for programs and activities can heighten visitor engagement. These zones become nuclei of community interaction and the catalyst for philanthropy, elevating the cemetery's relevance to a broader audience while also maintaining those quiet spaces. Lot owners are more inclined to explore and connect with the cemetery beyond conventional visits as mourners. This interplay between beauty and grief is a profound and mysterious aspect of the cemetery, and integral to understanding how cemetery landscapes can have an impact on the emotional experiences of visitors and mourners alike. Through the harmonization of these expectations of the space, individuals can find acceptance, tolerance, and appreciation for the aspects of the other that they are discomforted by. Now, I'm not a landscape architect, uh, but this question is one that has continuously fascinated and guided me throughout my research, and I welcome your thoughts and discussion on the topic. Thanks again. Hello, uh, my name is Matt Holmes. Uh, I am my co-author, Tom Galky, have recently put out the book Everyday Armageddon, Stories and Reflections on Death, Dying God, and Waste, with Cascade Books, an imprint of Stock Press. I myself, I am a uh, grief support specialist, I'm a chaplain, an EMT. I've worked in the burial business, funeral business, and also been a nurse's aide. And uh, my partner, Tom, is a, he's a theologian and a pastor. I mean, we're both teachers in different ways. And we got together and, and wrote this book, um, which is stories about modern death, um, how we die in the world in a myriad of different ways. And then Tom wrote these theopoetical reflections upon them. But I'll read you the preface of the book, give you some idea. Um, so it's a preface, and I wrote this part. She suffered enough. Work with the dying, and this phrase will become so common it'll bounce off you. The same as one saying, how are you doing when passing on the street? A pleasantry. It is a statement made without thought simply because the situation seemed to call for it. Somebody has died. Something had to be said. She suffered enough if it's the bill. It goes with the territory. What happens if you step back for a moment? What happens if you look at this statement and its assumptions with different eyes? What 
do we mean? What do we really mean when we say that the other has suffered enough? This question is what sparked this book, bringing pen to paper and expanding into all that is contained hereafter. What do we mean when we say she suffered enough? While concrete answers to this question may be satisfying, stories tend to offer us something truer, and so what follows are stories. After all, in the end, death is at the bottom of everything. At the same time, these stories, like any death, are also shot through with life and love, with humor and strength, struggle and acceptance. Between these stories are theopoetic interludes, breaks in the narrative to sit back and to listen and reflect, allow time for the meaning to make its way in. These stories are works of fiction. However, they are also born from years of experience working with the dying and the dead. Any of them could happen on any given day in any hospital room or living room or dying room. These stories, they're not meant to be easy to read. At times, they may seem playful or fun, but they're none of those things alone. Rather, they are honest, and they speak to what is happening all around us and inside us every moment of our existence. I work in death. It's my business, but it's your business, too. The stories in this book will one day be your story and the stories of your parents and your partner and your children. There may be other stories to write. There may be better ones. But if we can't read these stories and stories like them together, the narrative will remain as it is. In the past hundred years, the average American lifespan has increased by nearly three decades, which is a good thing. This extra time has also created the conditions of modern, ordinary death, death marked by chronic illness, lengthy, pervasive debility, often isolation from the community. Most of our friends and family, most of the world will die in ordinary, modern death. Our deaths will not make the news. They will not be discussed by strangers. They won't be written about by generations to come. Rather, they will happen behind closed doors, tucked away from the world after lengthy periods of pain and illness and cognitive decline. Everyday Armageddon's is a collection of narratives, stories, and theopoetic reflections about those ordinary deaths. If you read these stories, you take your place amongst them, and maybe to start to find your way through them. Well, thank you for sending in those audio clips. I hope people find them interesting and look up those works. And today's episode is quite a heavy topic to start the new year, but hopefully people will enjoy the episode, lots of food for thought, but also I think particularly the topic is mainly suicide. So if you do feel you need a break in between uh, the interview, do take it slowly and just listen to it in, in short spurts. And today, our episode features the brilliant Dr. Anne Luce, and she is a professor of journalism and health communication at Bournemouth University on the southwest coast of England. She is co-creator of the Suicide Reporting Toolkit, a toolkit for journalists and journalism educators on how best to report ethically and responsibly on suicide. And we really hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. As a professor of journalism and health communication, your work has focused on the responsible and ethical reporting of suicide, as well as on suicide prevention. And you have a host of publications, from books to articles to reports on this topic. Can you give us a bit of a summary of 
the key themes in your research? Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me on your podcast. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, my research spans quite a broad range of work in the field of suicide prevention. First and foremost, I'm really interested in responsible suicide reporting by journalists. It's really important that journalism educators are teaching journalism students how to report responsibly and ethically. So so those that's probably at the top of the list. Destigmatizing the topic of suicide. I've done a lot of work around that. And more recently, I've been spending quite a bit of time working across the National Health Service in the UK, the NHS, and really looking at postvention communication. So when a member of staff dies by suicide, so a healthcare worker dies by suicide, how does a National Health Service continue operating while also looking after patients who perhaps are suicidal themselves? So it's a really complex area. But it takes the principles of responsible suicide communication and applies them, you know, takes them from the field of journalism and then is applying them into other professions. That's absolutely fascinating. And in 2021, your work on the Suicide Reporting Toolkit was shortlisted for the Times Higher Education Research Project of the Year in Arts, Humanities and Social Science. Can you tell us about this toolkit? Yeah, so that was actually, that was just a really exciting moment, to be honest. <laughs> I felt like I was at the Academy Awards. <laughs> I mean, I've never been, I had to wear a ball gown, you know, and my co-creator and I, Dr. Sally Ann Duncan, the morning we found out that we had been shortlisted, it really was like the Oscars because we received these emails, you know, telling us the announcement will be made tomorrow, you know, at 8am and we were on the email. Actually, I was on the email waiting, refresh, refresh, refresh. I've never been so excited to refresh an email button in my work email in my life. And then we found out we were shortlisted. And Sally Ann, I mean, it took like three phone calls. She's like, I was sleeping. So for me, it was like really exciting. Maybe not so much for her. But then we had, we were quite proud because we put a lot of time and effort into the toolkit. So the Suicide Reporting Toolkit um, is a free online toolkit for journalists and journalism educators around the world. There's two toolkits in one, to be perfectly honest. And so the Journalist Toolkit takes journalists through the process of reporting a suicide story. So we had conducted some research to try and understand how how journalists report suicide and and do they adhere to national and international media reporting guidelines? Um, and so the study was based in the UK and we were able to identify that actually it's journalists are using the guidelines, but not consistently. And when we've spoken to journalists, it was like, well, why aren't you using guidelines? So in the UK, we have the Samaritans guidelines, you know, we have there's high-risk guidelines for young people. You know, the World Health Organization has suicide reporting guidelines, which I've contributed to. I've co-written three sets of those, you know, since 2007. So it's like the guidelines are out there, but why are they not being used? And having been a journalist myself, I know exactly why they're not being used is because they're booklets that are like 45 pages long, written by academics who, with all the good intentions in the world, think that these guidelines are the end-all, the be-all. And actually, a journalist who has five minutes to write a story 
doesn't have time to flick through 45 pages to find out what they're supposed to do. So the guidelines just aren't accessible. And I think that's something as academics, we sometimes forget that we do this amazing research, we come up with these recommendations and guidelines, and then we get them out there. And it's like, but why is no one using them? And no one's using them because they're just not appropriate or they're not in the content or in the format that the profession you've written them for can actually use. So with all that in mind, and Sally Ann was a former journalist as well, and we, we kind of sat down and we're like, well, what would we want? Because we had both covered suicide stories across our career. And we're like, something online, something that's easy, bullet points, maybe interactive if you have time to watch a video, but a really short video, images, again, quite accessible and, and easy to just see what you need to do. So we went about creating this toolkit. And actually, the toolkit has now been used more than 35,000 times since its launch in August 2020. It's being used around the world by journalists all around the world. It's being used in journalism classrooms all around the world. And the feedback we've gotten is that it is easy to use. Now, having built it myself, I, every time I look at it, all I see are the problems. Too much text on it needs to be more interactive but the sad thing was, was we didn't have any funding so this was cobbled together off of little pots of internal funding that we both were able to swindle out of our in individual universities and it was literally oh there's 500 pounds in a travel pot so i'd apply i'd get the 500 pounds and then i'd be able to travel up to sally Ann in scotland so we could record some videos together to make it look like we were actually in the same room. And then she would get some funding and then she would come down to Bournemouth and, you know, and then we would, you know, sit together for a day and a half with the most intense writing workshop trying to pull the content together. So, but we had to build the website ourselves. So, and we weren't web experts. And so I look at the toolkit and yes, it is a great resource, but I would love to overhaul it. You have no idea how much I would love to overhaul it, but it is being used. And one of the things that's really been great is that colleagues in Malaysia have actually been using the toolkit to help decriminalize suicide in that country. Uh, and we were honored back on World Suicide Prevention Day in 2021 that actually the toolkit has really played a part in that country in terms of that journey of taking suicide as this criminological issue and and it started to move the the dial in terms of making it a public health issue so that's that's really quite good but yeah the toolkit it also has on the journalism educator side it has lesson plans so it teaches because as part of our model that we created the responsible suicide reporting model which underpins the toolkit the journalism educators tool here, we have to teach them about the model, then we have to teach them how to teach the model. So we provided the lesson plans then that any journalism educator can go on there and can literally run, if they wanted, an entire unit or module on suicide reporting. Now we know that doesn't happen at universities across the world, but it could be used, you know, in a one or a two hour, even a five or a 10 minute session. So it's, it's quite adaptable. And what's really important on there as well is also the self-care aspect. Oftentimes, people forget that journalists are people too, and they have emotions, and they get activated when they're covering sensitive stories. 
and suicide is most definitely a sensitive topic. So we need to make sure journalists are looking after themselves. So working with colleagues uh, in Australia, we've actually, we use some of the, the mind frame guidance. They were kindly, they kindly let us reproduce those on the website. And it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's international guidance on how journalists can stay safe. It's so amazing to hear that it has such a real life impact and also that academic work is going out into the world and is so useful uh, yeah. to people and also for anyone listening with money, if you want to give Anne some money to overhaul. Oh, website design skills because I'm good, but I'm not good. <laughs> and one of the cases you've uh, written about are the bridge and suicides and in 2016 you wrote a book entitled the bridge and suicide suicide and the media and you published that with palgrave yeah. as someone personally very unfamiliar with that case can you talk us through it and what does the book cover about yeah so bridge was um was a really sad time to be honest so it actually was my phd thesis Although, you know, I finished the PhD years before the book was published because because it was such an intense time that I actually needed to have some space away from the Bridge End case, the Bridge End suicides, before I felt ready to be able to try and pull it all together in a book. So the book was published in 2016, but the Bridge End suicides happened in 2008. So, you know, it was eight years before I could actually kind of bring it all together because it was such a traumatic time in that area. And I, and I also, I, I was very conscious that I needed to be respectful of the people who were affected in that town. So for anyone who doesn't know, Bridgend, the borough of Bridgend is just, just outside Cardiff in Wales. So it's in South Wales. It's a small community, small Welsh community, former mining town. Everybody knows everybody. Close-knit community, but a poor community in a sense as well. After, you know, the miners situation post-Thatcher, you know, it really impacted South Wales. So that's kind of the, the context into the area. What happened was in, or what was perceived to have happened was between January and June 2008, 20 young people died by suicide in this area of Bridgend. What people don't really realize is that the first death in that, and it wasn't even deemed a cluster, um, and a cluster of suicides is when two or more suicides happen in a place or a location in a really close time span. There was a cluster around that time period that colleagues and myself have looked at, but it, was, it wasn't it was in that particular area. It was just outside of it. The story, though, actually began with the death of a young man in October of 2007. And what kind of sparked this off was he died and then his two best friends in the December and January also killed themselves. By the same method. Now, when we look at that, as suicidologists or people working in this field, we know that people who are bereaved by suicide are at a much higher risk of suicide themselves in the days, weeks, and months, and even years after the death of their loved one. So 
with an objective hat on, we can say because there wasn't an intervention, perhaps in the friendship group, perhaps the right support wasn't provided at the time, then yes, those two young men, two young men who killed themselves in response to their friend's death, that's when we look at it from, through that suicidologist lens makes sense. You know, like we have the evidence that would show that that would and could happen. But this was a small community and the local newspaper reported on the story as they did. It was a regional story and it was a front page headlines and said, we have a male suicide crisis in our area. And what happened after that was it got picked up. The story got picked up by the Welsh News Service, which was, you know, similar to like any wire service. And then the story got a little bit more traction nationally. And then another young person died. And then another young person died. And now we've got a lot of young people who are dying in this area of Bridgend. And the story becomes not only nationally, but it goes international. And then we had the descending of media outlets from all around the world on this little town in South Wales. And in fact, some media coverage around the world had to actually, in their newspapers, magazines, and on their television programs, actually had to run explainers about where the country of Wales was, let alone where Bridgend was. I mean, when you look at it, you know, with hindsight, it's like, oh my God, like, how did it get like this? The issue was that the media coverage ended up becoming the story in the end. So the media was fueling this story and it, it just wasn't able to be contained. My research, though, was trying to understand what on earth was going on here with this media coverage? Why the sensationalism and why so the frenetic reporting and and why was it an international story? What was the thing that was hooking absolutely every journalist around the world into this particular story? And why were none of them thinking, hang on a second, I wonder how all of these people who are being bereaved are actually feeling about all of this coverage. So there was a real disconnect. My research actually determined that there was a moral panic around suicide that emerged. But the moral panic wasn't about suicide, the, the stigmatized topic that's so taboo that nobody ever wants to talk about. It was actually about the unregulated internet. It was actually about social media. So in 2008, if you can cast your minds back, Facebook had only been public for about a year. Okay, it went public in 2007. This was January 2008. In the UK and Ireland, we had a little social media site called Bebo. MySpace was also kind of there on the periphery, but it was mostly in the UK and the Republic of Ireland, it was mostly Facebook and Bebo. And, you know, not to be too discriminatory, but middle-aged white editors did in newsrooms around the country and around the world did not understand the concept of social media. They didn't understand that being a friend on Facebook 
didn't necessarily mean that you knew the person in real life. They couldn't understand why these young people were all throwing sheep at each other on Facebook. You know, there was some real panic about what is going on in this social media world. And and what ended up happening was a narrative emerged that it was a suicide cult and it was all being fueled by, by social media. So all these kids were online or young people, they weren't even kids. They were, you know, late teens in some cases. The youngest person who had died was a 15-year-old and he was the cousin of an 18-year-old who had died. So when we started to look at the people who were dying, you can see the connections in terms of family or they were friends. And actually, it was these were folks who were bereaved and who were needed help and, you know, needed an intervention around their bereavement. And then there were outliers as well who had no connections, but but the media really tried to make a connection between social media and, and and different things that happen, you know, sinister things that happen, you know, on the World Wide Web. So that's pretty much the story of Bridgend. The, the real story, though, to my mind, is that we had all of this, we had six months of absolute chaotic media coverage that did so much harm to that area and family and friends. The real story is that when you go back and look at the data years onwards, the same number of suicides are still happening in that area in that same time period. Now, I haven't looked for a few years, so it, you know, I've been poorly myself, so I haven't, you know, gone back and looked specifically probably for three or four years. But when I last looked, the deaths were similar. If the media wanted to cover a story, around suicide in Bridgend when they really should have been covering that story, when there was really something out of the norm going on. And I'm not saying that journalists should be covering anything that's out of the norm because we need them to be ethical and responsible in how they report on suicide. But it was actually 2004 was when there was a there was something else going on in that area that would have been quite newsworthy. So... So it's a real interesting case study, for me at least. You know, it was really quite foundational for me in terms of my thinking and reflections on how how journalists should be reporting on suicide. I don't know if it was reported in the Netherlands at the time, but I don't have any vivid memories of it. But I'm also thinking, why this town? Because I feel you could go lots of different places in the world and have a similar kind of story. I do think... Bridgend Suicides, it does sound a bit like a Nordic noir series. That Well, interestingly enough, there is a uh, Dutch uh, film maker who made a film about the Bridgend Suicides, and that's the final chapter of the book. <laughs> and when I interviewed him, it was it was quite interesting to uh, to hear why he thought it was a good story to be to be told. I'm definitely going to look up that film. You've already touching on like the importance of good communication and safe reporting and like being mindful of the language that is used by reporters and by anyone, I guess. But you've worked uh, also with the government of the Commonwealth of Australia to create hashtag ChatSafe, a young person's guide for communication safely online about suicide. 
and young people's access to harmful content online is a significant concern at the moment. Yeah, so actually this was a project that was led by my colleagues at Origin um, and the University of Melbourne in Australia. So they they led the project. It was, you know, their idea. They They brought a group of international colleagues together so we could talk about these guidelines. And and chat safe guidelines are really important because these guidelines were created in response to young people telling colleagues at the University of Melbourne that they didn't know how to talk to their friends online when they would see a friend saying, oh, I wish I could die or I wish I was dead or, you know, or, or posting images and music that's, you know, really quite concerning or indicated a level of distress, Origin came together and said, well, hang on a second. Why are we not equipping young people to be able to to deal with this situation or give them some skills and resources at least so they know what to do? The international community came together and we discussed what would these guidelines look like. So they are there to help young people chat safely online about suicide. And they've now been translated into multiple languages they're used worldwide facebook and instagram well facebook mostly adopted them and has them in their health center as well so yeah really important guidelines i think for young people to just have the skills that they need to that they need to be able to deal with these challenging situations and as you said at the start you have had a background in journalism and you don't just write academic work and one of your pieces of journalism was investigating suicide rates in Florida, 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 and garden sport uh, for the creation of the Office of Suicide Prevention and Drug Control in the state of Florida. And since you've got quite a lot of experience in investigative data journalism, can you share us some insights and perhaps some differences between academic work and journalistic work. You already said earlier, like journalists are often on a real-time pressure, but... Yeah, so my my start in this area, investigating suicide rates, so I was a young journalist in Florida. I was actually bereaved by suicide. My partner at the time, who was also a journalist, died by suicide. And when he died, it as you can imagine, absolutely shook my world and I couldn't understand it. Just could not understand it. Was in my early 20s, didn't make sense to me. Even though he had struggled with mental health his entire life, um, he was bipolar. He had attempted suicide several times over the course of the time we had been together, but it still came as the absolute hugest shock to me. And so I did what a lot of people who have been bereaved by suicide do. They want to take action so that it doesn't happen to anyone else or people. other people don't have to feel the same way that they felt. And so the only tools I had at the time was I was a journalist. I was a writer and I could go and investigate the story of suicide. What is it? Why does it happen? How does it happen? When does it happen? To whom does it happen? And so I was living in Florida at the time and ultimately started doing some digging and learned that the state of Florida did not have an Office of Suicide Prevention. They did not have a suicide prevention strategy for the whole state. 
So I started causing some noise <laughs> through my through what I had available to me, which was loads of column inches in a daily newspaper uh, in the state of Florida. And I also covered politics in Florida. So I was just regularly there, you know, in the state capitol covering the political season, you know, when the House of Representatives and Senate were in session. Well, so was Anne Luce. So, you know, doorstepped at the time, Governor Jeb Bush, yes, George Bush's, President George Bush's brother. Um, so he was the governor of Florida at the time and doorstepped him quite a bit. And I think that just wore them down, to be honest. I, I really do. But I also was able to identify that to set up an office of suicide prevention and drug control in the state of Florida would only cost them $100,000. And in the grand scheme of things, I thought that was a very good investment. So I ended up writing a series of um, editorials. They won some awards, which I'm quite proud of. Um, and they were also, Jeb Bush himself actually said it was really responsible reporting of suicide. So that was my foray in, but it didn't, it didn't land well with me. You know, I can, I can talk about that now and it might sound a little bit vain even bringing it up or for me I wouldn't even display or tell people that I had that this work had made a difference because to me it hadn't done enough my partner had still died like what are you talking about like don't give me an award <laughs> like make it stop happening to other people you know so that was kind of my foray in and you know after you know I must have spent a solid six or eight months only reporting on suicide. And then I got pulled into my editor's office at one point and he pretty much said, you're bumming us out now. We need you to work on other things besides suicide. We've covered, we've given more column inches to suicide than any other newspaper in the country, let alone the state. And I kind of just got angry. I was like, well, no. I'm no, I'm not done. Like there's more to be done here. And I've realized quickly that I just couldn't do what I wanted to do as a journalist. So the next best thing was, oh, let's go do a PhD because research is where it's at. Because what if I could actually figure out the answers to all of these problems at an earlier stage? So I was like, okay, so the journalist is disseminating the information and trying to educate the populace. What if I could actually stop it from happening or what if I could find out why it happens or when it happens and how it happens you know all those same questions but earlier in the process that's when I moved to Wales now I'm originally from Dublin so it's not that big of a leap for me to move from Florida to Wales um, I was just pretty much trying to get as close to home as I possibly could in Dublin living in Wales you know originally my research my PhD when I was at Cardiff was looking at child suicide and I was trying to understand the the roots and, you know, and how do we prevent child suicide? Because I even thought, well, if you could, you know, there's research out there that shows that if from the first suicide attempt within 10 years, you know, it's quite old research now. And I think the field has moved on quite a bit, but it, it was indicating at the time that if you could prevent the first attempt, then you potentially would be preventing suicide 10 years down the line. So I was like, whoa, well, if I'd have been able to do that for my partner, then maybe this would, you know, so it was very much living this 
this lived experience coupled with working my own trauma with trying to in a sense you know and it's quite common i think in the suicide prevention field that we sometimes think that we can solve the problem you know it's the god complex in a sense um and until you have someone who's a colleague who can kind of bring you back down to earth and who can say it's not your responsibility to fix everything you know you don't have that power it's about managing risk and it took me a long time in my career a very long time in my career to realize that suicide prevention is about mitigating risk but it's but it's a complex especially when you've been bereaved and that's what brings you to the topic it becomes a very complex web that you're working in because it becomes your academic identity as oh i'm the person who researches suicide but it also then becomes the the personal identity as well because it's this that's what pushed you to do it in the in the first place so so it's it's a, it's a really complex one but when we when we talk then about the differences between the journalism and the academic getting into the academic side of things it was just slower so much slower and for a journalist or former journalist that just annoyed the heck out of me and to be honest with you i still struggle with it i still really struggle with how slow it is to do the research then get it out there after peer review and then you have to do something else to make it have an impact that just it's never really sat well with me to be honest which is why the toolkit ended up moving so quickly because i needed it was we were developing the toolkit as we were doing the research because I already had an understanding of the types of things that we needed to do. But once we had the model, then the, we were able to go back and, and underpin the toolkit was everything from the model. The slowness was the hardest thing for me to deal with in academia. But at the same time, knowing that we're doing rigorous work, although I would argue I did a heck of a lot of rigorous work as a journalist, you know, and I would let that stand up journalist and versus academic and. I think the two would kind of be neck and neck at times. So I'm also wondering, because you talk about academia being slow, wanting to do more also, it be stemming from personal experience of bereavement by suicide. One of the things you've also been involved in are government task force associations and alliances. Is that also... Part of the question is, what do those things do? But is that also your involvement in that? Is that because you always think, oh, it, it's never enough. I should do more. I should be involved in more things. So could you talk a bit about working with those kinds of organizations? Oh, definitely. Yeah, because so as a journalist, I was able to do one thing. As an academic, I was able to do research, but then it's so slow. It's how do you then have an impact, an immediate impact? So... I then started thinking, well, maybe if I start working with charities, governments, other organizations in this sphere, that that's where I could have a greater influence. And I believe that that actually has helped a little bit because what it does is it also, I'm learning as well, because I'm, I'm always quite conscious that, yes, okay, I've done this body of work in suicide prevention, but I'm not a clinician. 
I don't have a training in psychology or psychiatry, not a nurse. I don't, I'd like, I don't have that medical or even public health background that a lot of my colleagues do have. But yet I do have a lived experience and I also have an, an, a knowledge and an expertise in journalism. And, and media reporting is really a very important aspect of suicide prevention. So I come at it from, from the lived experience and the media experience uh, and communication experience. But I'm also always very aware that I need to be very careful about not swaying too far into other lanes, so to speak. And it's really difficult to stay in my old lane because again, I have that lived experience and I want to be like shouting it from the rooftops. But yeah, working with the National Suicide Prevention Alliance in the UK, that was fascinating because I was working with national charities. So Samaritans, Mind, Rethink Mental Illness. And I was working with other colleagues, charities across the UK who their sole purpose is to provide support and suicide prevention and intervention. And so that was a really humbling experience for me to to see how these folks tackle suicide prevention day in and day out. It was also an opportunity to work with the Department for Health um, and Social Care in the UK and the Department for Education. And it was an opportunity to influence national policy through the National Suicide Prevention Alliance. I'm also the UK national representative for the International Association of Suicide Prevention, EOSP. So I've been a part of EOSP since 2007 when, you know, I became a, my PhD journey began really post after my partner had died a year, year or two, two years after he had died. And so I've been on that journey with that organization and, and they provide international guidance and support, not necessarily intervention. It's very much a research organization. So the colleagues I'm working with there are all well-known researchers in their home countries. They are at the top of their field. It's really quite intimidating uh, to work with a lot of those colleagues. But at the same time, I have fought with them and yelled at them and argued with them. And our conferences can become quite heated because we're all coming at this topic from different perspectives. And there's always a risk in academia that when you're in your own discipline, you you get a bit of a narrow focused lens where you can only see the solutions through your discipline. And that's one of the things that kind of frustrates me about suicide prevention, because it is so stigmatized anyway. We have to be looking outside of the box. We have to be working with people from different disciplines in order to be able to move the dial forward, even just a tiny, tiny millimeter, you know, let alone an inch. And so it's been challenging over the years to to work with colleagues who just are on a completely different wavelength, come out of differently in terms of methodology, you know, methodological, you know, I've, I'm, I love qualitative research. I'm not going to lie. I'm a qualitative researcher. There is space for quants. I do love quants. Data is brilliant. But I'm a mixed methods researcher, so I do quals and quants with a bit of a more of a love towards quals. But the two go together. But when you're working with colleagues who all they do is randomize control trials and they do not have space in their hearts for any other methodology, 
it can be really challenging and it can also limit the research and limit the field and limit the solutions. So I've also worked with various different governments, you know, in the UK have advised um, parliamentary groups, you know, on different evidence calls and topics that they have. And I just find it's about getting my research into those spaces. They don't have to necessarily, I don't need them to always necessarily act on it. But I feel it's important that different voices are heard and different perspectives are heard. And I think that's probably why I push so hard, you know, in this particular area. Thank you so much for all these really rich answers. It's just so great to listen to you. And you just touched on this question that I'm about to ask you, actually. So you've been talking now about these kind of quite heated environments that can be generated by different experiences and perspectives. And we were just thinking when we were writing these questions up that right, there must be a lot of emotional labour involved in the work that you're doing. You talked about your own bereavement. How do you approach that kind of? You talked earlier as well about the importance of self-care in the toolkit that you've produced and it has a section on the website if anyone wants to go and look that has like a self-care button you can click on. What's your approach, answer to your own self-care? So it kind of comes down to that old adage, I guess it is, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, I have not gotten it right for most of my career, to be perfectly honest. I... I have been burned out more times than I actually would like to admit, although my partner now would probably be very happy to hear me admit it in a public forum. But I, I have been in distress and crisis myself over the years, especially, you know, when I've been dealing with really difficult suicide situations that I've been brought into, you know, because I'm quite active locally in Dorset, where I live around suicide prevention. So I sit on the suicide response team. I'm their research and meeting lead for the local multi-agency group. You know, I've had responsibility for real-time surveillance and looking at the data and trying to identify where are the places of interest or where are we having trends, disturbing trends particularly, that are emerging. And, and then what interventions do we do? So, you know, I've spent a lot of time and, and sadly we had a cluster of suicides back in 2019 that really, really caused me some mental health problems myself. But I've been learning. So I've learned over the years what I need to do. I would say exercise, to be perfectly honest, has been, you know, in the years past, you would find me at three spinning classes a week, really cycling out my frustration and anger people look at me and I'm like spending classes really like really I'm like it's amazing because it was just me and that bike and it was stationary I wasn't going anywhere and it was just pretty much go 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 I also really the best therapy I ever had to be perfectly honest was having EMDR um which is eye movement desensitization I can't remember what the R stands for but it was great. And and to be honest with you, I kind of wish I'd had EMDR when my partner had died. I wouldn't suggest that my path and the way that I've, my career has evolved in suicide prevention would be one that I would suggest to other people. I was traumatized when my partner died. I did have therapy for a number of years, a long, long time. But then I was throwing myself into this activism of being working in suicide prevention 
so while doing the therapy more than likely have been counteracting that like it was just blanking it out really you know because then i was just by continuously re-traumatizing myself by working in the field and i've done that for a number of years and it's it's only really been in the last couple of years especially since i've been quite poorly the last two years it's really made me have to stop and take a look and seriously reflect on where i've been and where i've where i'm where i've come from and where i want to go now moving forward i would say that i have learned a lot about trauma in the last 10 years especially so educating myself around this field of trauma and understanding that trauma resides in the body the mind body connection so i actually one of the best things i do for myself in terms of self-care is shaking um and it's one of the best things any of us can do you know actually according to the literature um shake like a dog you know we often see dogs when you know they do their little shakes and that's just moving the energy through their bodies so why shake 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 all day long um so after this call for instance i will get up i turn on the song i don't know if it's gonna be a copyright issue would i turn on the song happy by pharrell and i just shake for the duration of that song and it shifts the mood it shifts the energy and it's it's actually one of the best techniques you can use so meditation is also something else that I've really embraced in the last couple of years as well. But I cannot underestimate the value of a good therapist. To be perfectly honest, doing this work, any and I would say anybody who is working in sensitive topics needs someone to debrief with. That is the number one thing. And I don't think, actually, I don't think researchers and i don't think uh universities do a very good job at supporting academics who work in these types of areas i'm the only person in my institution who does this type of suicide work day in and day out my colleagues don't like to talk to me about my research because it's oh god it's really depressing and it's you know it, people are uncomfortable by the topic which then means as a researcher, I'm really quite isolated and alone. And and that's a challenge. And it's always been a challenge. And so for me, I kind of look wistfully at colleagues who work in psychology departments and mental health departments and nursing areas and anthropology and sociology, you know, who perhaps are looking or have a little bit more of a focus on death studies or on a suicidology studies or mental health or nursing because there's a community there whom you can debrief with. You have colleagues who you can debrief with. I've never had that. So for me, my only option has ever been to have to go see a therapist and debrief in that way. So again, I wouldn't suggest anyone who's working in this field to take the path that I have had because I don't think it's been safe. I don't think it's been psychologically safe, but it's also given me some insight I think that I wouldn't have had had I not had this journey. I mean, it's all hindsight really, isn't it? But, you know, it, it does it does make me think there's a paper in this. It's a paper I would read. What an amazing answer. I would love to come to Dorset and shake with you and talk about the body keeps the soul and EMDR and just, oh my God, everything. I feel like we have a lot to talk about. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> now, when Rithneth contacted you, 
I got an out-of-office bounce back and I wasn't expecting to hear from you because in the out-of-office bounce back, you've got this lovely message explaining that you've had really severe post-COVID complications and asking people to bear with you on your recovery journey. Would you be willing to share with us a bit about what that experience has been for you? Yeah, it's been life-changing is the short answer. So I caught COVID in March 2022. So right at the tail end, in a sense, it was right when Omicron was coming on the scene. It was kind of, there was about a five-day window where there was a changeover between, I think it was the Delta strand and the Omicron strand. And I got sick right in that area. And I've never been so sick in my life. I tested positive for 13 days. I was not hospitalized, but I had all of the symptoms every single symptom that you could have with Omicron, the Omicron variant. I was really sick. I was delirious, really scared, my partner and my friends. And, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a hard two weeks. Didn't really realize there was a problem until probably about day 21, 22. And it was, oh, huh. I can't really speak. I was croaking a lot and I had the sore throat from, can't even tell you, I've never experienced such a sore throat in my life. Got in touch with the doctor, GP. Okay, sounds like you had a bad case of it. And it just, it just went on. And the, the long and the short of it was I just didn't recover. And at the worst, you know, I was walking I could do maybe 100, 150 steps a day. That's, you know, I was pretty much bed bound. But what was really challenging was that as it went on, I lost my voice. And I lost the ability to communicate. And being a professor of communication, the irony there is not, did not go unnoticed. Let me tell you, even by my medical team, who found it quite funny at one point. But it was, it was harrowing and I lost the ability to communicate. Text-to-speech apps were not great, to be honest. Not only are they racist and problematic in that way, what it really made me do, and it gave me a deep reflection into the communication process, and I learned very quickly how much what I was contributing really didn't matter in a conversation. And, and then how frustrating that was. And then, well, why is it frustrating? I, I mean, it became a really in-depth reflective cycle for at least the first year. Now, thankfully, you know, I've had speech therapy and my voice now, I can talk like this to you. You can hear me. It's clear. It's crisp. But I cannot project my voice. So I'm not able to teach. So that was the voice. Then there's the brain. I ended up with some serious cognitive dysfunction, probably caused by hypoxia when I was sleeping at night for the initial 13 days when I had COVID. My pulse ox didn't drop below 96 during the day, but the working hypothesis is that at nighttime it must have. It frustrates me when people say, oh, it's brain fog. And it's like, no, it was cognitive dysfunction. I had never had a parking or never had a ticket in my life. And when I was allowed to start driving again, it's been 20 months now, but probably this last part of the year, the last eight or nine months, I actually had 11 tickets, parking tickets, which my partner was not been very happy about, as you can imagine. 
<laughs> cost of living crisis, cost of Anne's brain crisis, like the two go together. But ultimately, just memory loss, couldn't remember anything. I, I can't even explain the level of dysfunction. I guess probably the, the good example I give is, you know, when I was tested by my neuropsychologist, one of the barometers they used was, um, okay, so a woman in her 40s with a PhD should be scoring 90, 95 and above on these tests. And when they tested my executive function, I was at 12. So the the huge inability to not be able to use my brain and not realizing how attached I was to my brain, which kind of was, well, why wouldn't it be? I'm an academic, but I wasn't able to read. And actually I've just had a real success because this past week I was able to read three chapters of a book without stopping. So I've had to rehab myself and, and it's in, it's hard, you know? So how do you say as an academic when you can't read you can't remember, you you can't speak. So there was a real crisis for me over the last couple of years, you know, and then how do you do suicide work and should you be doing suicide work while this is going on? So it's been a real reflective time, but people like yourselves and, you know, my colleagues who I work with have all been wonderful and, you know, have been very accommodating. Yeah, it's been a real eye-opening experience. Thank you so much, Anne. And it's quite an invisible thing in some way, isn't it? So it can be really hard to articulate. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the invisible illness and invisible disability side of it is, you know, is a real challenge because even now people look at me and go, oh, you're, so, you're, you're healed. You're doing so much better. And I'm like, oh, yeah. But the thing that you don't see <laughs> is that I have to do this little thing called pacing which means every moment of my day is accounted for in a particular way. Different activities have to be done at different times based on my energy levels. I can have a conversation with someone, but unless I've written it down or have some sort of a point of reference, I could see that person an hour and a half, two hours later, and they'd be like, oh, hey, I really enjoyed our conversation. And in my brain, I'd be thinking, I haven't seen you in weeks or months or like, who are you? You know, so there's some real kinds of things like that. So I can't do exercise. Those spinning classes are gone, never to return, probably. My heart rate has to stay in a particular level, you know, so I'm wired up on absolutely everything. The NHS tracks me like I'm homing pigeon. I see a speech therapist every week. I have to have acupuncture every week or the headaches are too intense. I mean, it's all this other labor that is going on to be able to be able to present myself to the world on a daily basis. So, and, and I am not the only person who does this. And there are people who have been living with chronic illness for their entire lives, way longer than me, who are in, who've been dealing with this for much longer than me. So I also am just very aware of my privilege <laughs> and also very aware of that my story and my journey is nothing compared to other colleagues out there who show up as academics every day in classrooms all around the world and are living through what is their nightmare. Well, thank you. And we'd like to ask you one more question before we ask you our ever-present question about advice, because we really couldn't let you go without asking about your other area of expertise, because you've, you've done loads of work around birth and midwifery. You've written articles 
about midwives posts on Instagram about birth and an edited book on media and birth mm-hmm. and an article on whether portrayals of pregnancy and childbirth in the media are realistic or not. So we'd love to hear a little bit more about this sort of sure. strand of your work and research. And we also wondered, are there any like interconnections? Yeah. If you had all the time in the world to do all the research you wanted, would you want to explore any interconnections between these different kind of areas of your work? The similarities are really uncanny, to be honest, between suicide and midwifery slash childbirth, more so the childbirth. And it was actually some colleagues um, in our health and social sciences faculty who dragged me into their world back in 2013, two professors, Venora Hundley and Edwin Van Teigen. And, you know, these are two professors who are known across the midwifery field you know, for all of the amazing groundbreaking work that they've done. And then they come and find little old me and say, hey, the media is the cause of all the problems in, in around childbirth and midwifery. And we think you could come help us figure that out. And I was like, excuse me? Yeah. The media is to blame for what? And so we spent probably the first five years of our working relationship arguing with each other with me trying to tell them that media effects arguments are something, you know, from the 1950s and could we please come into the, you know, the mid-naughties. And, and so that's why all the, all the publications came was because they were arguing one side, I was arguing another, and it was like, well, if we're having these arguments, then clearly there would be other scholars out there who perhaps were, you know, having them. And only to find out that when we went to write our article, our first article with the how is midwifery represented in the media only to come out and find out there's nothing published on it. So we found this untapped area that really needed some exploration. So we kind of positioned ourselves in that, in that field. I mean, now you've got amazing scholars who are working, you know, there and doing like so much more work than, than we are. But for me, you know, people often say to me, suicide, childbirth, what like where does, does it is it the methodology that connects it is it the message you're using and you know and i'm like actually the thing that brings it together is the discourse for me and that's the number one thing so the key thing is suicide hidden from view birth hidden from view we do not see birth we just don't see it you know it's nowhere to be found you know even on our television screens it's this you know melodramatic 30 seconds oh hey your child is here but you ask any woman how long childbirth lasts it ain't 30 seconds you know and it's not always a crisis it's a fascinating representation we have of childbirth and early birth in in the media um but on the suicide side we also don't see suicide anywhere represented anywhere and there are reasons for that, and I understand there are reasons for that. We don't want to be showing method, but to not really talk about it at all, you know, and have it hidden from view. So what were really, for me, what was fascinating was how taboo suicide is, and in a sense, how taboo birth is. So, so that's kind of been my really fascinating insight, although it's probably not too fascinating, you know, the grand scheme of things. But at the same time, for me, it was also nice to have a bit of a balance to be able to work on something else instead of the suicide stuff all the time. So being able to, 
you know, when the suicide stuff got too heavy, oh, now I'm dealing with birth, the beginning of life rather than the ending of it. So, so that's been quite, you know, quite a support to me actually over the years in terms of, you know, what would I explore if I had all the time in the world? Oh my gosh. I did give some thought to this when you initially floated it and it's probably more some of my more recent work that I would focus on rather than some of the older work, if I'm perfectly honest. The thing I think that needs to be looked at that is completely being sidelined, ignored, and I'm, and I'm only talking about in the UK here, is the fact that workplaces in the UK are not required to have suicide prevention strategies. And, and I think that's a problem. And if I had all the time in the world, I would create a template, a, a validated template that every business, organization, institution in the UK could sit down, reflect on their organization, reflect on their business, identify how well-being programs work, how mental health programs work, how suicide prevention needs to work. And I would train up absolutely everybody in a workplace on mental health and suicide prevention. And I would have the, the, the research evidence to underpin it because I think that's, and, and, you know, and I, I think probably from my recent project working in the NHS and, and I'm working on a book about this at the moment about, you know, how do you deal with workplace suicide when you're the carer? And I think that work was really eye-opening to me and it really showed me the scale of the problem that we're dealing with in workplaces when we look at suicide um, and the fact that there isn't a legal requirement to actually have that support in place I think that's a huge huge problem so but I could see myself doing that for the rest of my life if I had the funding <laughs> because I think it's I think it's a really important important area so yeah it, it so it doesn't bring in the journalism and it doesn't bring in the midwifery it's I'm going to a whole new avenue now <laughs> oh that's amazing there and again shout out to any anyone out there with money and funders you know let's support Adam to do this amazing work it's interesting we're about to release an episode today because we're recording this on the 1st of December we release our episodes on the 1st and the episode we're releasing today has some really moving stuff about staff suicides in universities and mental health in the university context. Right. Mm-hmm. Hopefully anyone who's listening to this may have already been and listened to that episode with Dr. Christopher Hood at Cardiff University and check it out. Now, we can't let you leave without asking you for advice because we always ask our guests for some advice. So have you got any gems you'd like to offer about life in academia, long COVID, anything? Anything at all. You could say it could be a black spin class if you want. So I have three things that I hope would be useful to your listeners. The first one, self-care is not for tomorrow. The second one, 12 minutes a day of Kirtan Kriya meditation can calm you down and actually prevent your brain from degeneration. The research evidence is conclusive on that. And I think the last one is really probably quite just coming from the heart and quite personal. So I would say in the last two years, 
I've lost my voice, I've lost my brain, and I've lost my energy. Two of the most important people in my life also died. I've had relationships change and end. I've been insecure. I've been worried. I've been afraid, depressed, anxious, and had suicidal ideation. I wondered what would be left of my career in academia. Like I said, what good is a, a professor of communication who can't communicate? But my favorite musical in the world, I'm a huge musical theater buff, and my favorite musical is Rent. And my favorite song from that musical, I think, actually has the best pearls of wisdom of all, which are, there's only now, there's only here, give in to love or live in fear. No other path, no other way, no day but today. Brought tears to my eye, Adam. <laughs> That's the journalist in me. I know how to end a story. Amazing. Thank you so much for time today, Anne. So much good advice throughout and especially towards the end, Beth. I absolutely adored speaking to Anne. Yeah, it was like a powerfully uplifting and thought-provoking and life-affirming interview, wasn't it? Like we were both quite buzzing afterwards because it was very emotional for us both to be listening to Anne and to talk to her. And yet at the same time, like that emotion was quite powerful in terms of thinking what an impact has this this woman had like a really powerful impact yeah. and so many of the products she's worked on are so impactful and so much of it has been done with very little money or support and I found all of that really interesting in particular in the context of academia where sometimes it can be quite difficult to get a sense of of what that impact is and I really really enjoyed listening to someone talk about overlap between different jobs and careers as well and the sort of more practicey journalistic writing and the academic work complement each other so so well. Uh, I I found myself after the interview because as Anne was talking about shaking. So while we were when we were recording the interview, I was in Amsterdam. Found myself just shaking it out, and since then I've done that various times where I just because I have found at the start of New Year I don't know what it is, but every morning I've kind of wake, woken up feeling quite anxious. And I've do I have notes like the shaking and the move moving is really helping me or just going for a walk, but especially that I'm shaking right now whilst I'm talking, so I don't know if you can hear that on the record. It's so simple. That has also made a big impact in my day to day. January can be so hard, can't it? And you 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 and me and Chris uh, have a little WhatsApp group, one of our previous guests, Chris, and um, where we've all been chatting about like, yeah, January being pretty tough. So so hopefully some of those wellness tips from and will be things you might want to try out or things you might want to do. I know I really found the idea of the shame blame cycle of the people pleaser mm. to be very resonant with me and struggling with those feelings around feeling bad about things and then sort of blaming myself and then kind of like having to work through all that stuff. And it's so great to, to listen to someone talk about that in the context of personal life and research and also give some suggestions for kind of how to sit with that it made me kind of reflect back on several episodes we've had with with psychologists and people who work in counseling where I've taken a lot of tips from those as well I think I, I take a huge amount of 
personal sort of self-help from a lot of these episodes and that isn't something I necessarily thought I would when we started the podcast was it unexpected for you yeah and it's also because our uh, running question we always ask at the end I really appreciate that we started doing that and have continued to do so because it is offering a lot of yeah self-help I feel I'm less inclined uh, compared to you to read like self-help books and things like that but now I do feel I get a monthly dose of self-help uh, through all the insights provided by our guests and also sometimes by our listeners commenting on our episodes. One of the things parallel to this, uh, as people may know, I have on my blog That Good Reading and I recently read the book The Archaeology of Loss by Sarah Tarlow and in it she reflects on her partner dying. Uh, he had a, an illness that was never really properly diagnosed but at some point there was no hope for recovery and he chose to take his own life by taking ordering medication online and killing himself through those means and in the book she is very critical about the fact that that death is classified as a suicide so for me reading that book and then also listening to someone like Anne talking about like all suicides or most suicides should be prevented it's very interesting to uh, read something like Sarah's work where she argues no if also these deaths should not be classified as suicides but also they should not have been prevented it's just other ways of making these deaths possible that should exist particularly in the UK context so I found that really interesting as well. Yeah it's remarkable isn't it and the complexity and how political what it means to die by suicide is really comes to the fore both in Anne's interview but also in our previous interview that we had that was that was focused on on suicide and LGBTQ plus communities and you'll remind me of the wonderful guest who who spoke about that Hazel Marzetti yeah she's brilliant as well Hazel yeah so anyone who hasn't listened to that might want to pop back and and sort of listen through to that one I think I spent a lot of time thinking about the difference as well between things like classifications for deaths like what we use in the UK, I know in some other countries as well, it misadventure. There can be a great deal of overlap there potentially between the sort of meanings around those kinds of deaths where you can't be sure what what did or didn't occur. One question I did have for you, Beth, and I also must admit I haven't looked up the film that has been made in the Netherlands about the Bridgend suicides, but I was wondering as a person who's from Wales and given the impact Hearing Anne talk about the journalism and the responses and internationally, I was wondering whether you, as someone from Wales, did it have the same kind of impact locally or was it more, did did you know about it or was it something you learned about it through Anne as well? Well, thank you for asking that. Yeah, no, I knew about it. It was huge news. I'm from the north, so a different part of Wales. It's very, very interested to hear Anne talk about the idea of moral panic in relation to this and and that being moral panic about social media I'm definitely going to read Anne's full book on on that derived from her doctoral thesis as it is such a an interesting case study and and so sensitive and complex but to, to apply that sort of analysis to the media coverage I think is really important for reflecting on why certain things get so much attention and and others don't and being really thorough in that analysis with that journalistic media lens that 
Anne's able to bring to this, you know, as well as all of her research in, in health, I think gives it really interdisciplinary and academic viewpoint and lens that allows such a difficult topic to be analysed in a really helpful and, and in-depth way. I know that one of the sort of things I've talked about with friends who I grew up with in the north of Wales has been more around like, well, what what did people die of when we were younger? And it was two things, traffic collisions and suicides and suicides in farming communities like where I grew up. And whilst there was certainly not this kind of media spectacle or, or, or moral panic around a particular place or setting, it was always kind of part of people's life experience and, and sort of reflections and a conversation that we've had a couple of times and I've had with a few colleagues at Falmouth University is around like ideas around disclosure and right to disclose or not to disclose so I think I sometimes do find the topic of suicide difficult to talk about more so because there are some things I sort of want to say and then I I'm quite consciously choosing not to because I have still some stuff I'm kind of thinking through and working through in terms of whether it is for me to say and whether it I feel comfortable with saying that so if I sound super awkward sometimes around this topic that's and that's yeah stuff that I'm I'm kind of thinking through and talking to Anne has been probably one of the highlights of last year for me in terms of the podcast and just another thing that sounds slightly random, but like we couldn't stop talking for about two days about how lush her accent is. So thank you, Anne, for taking the time to talk to us. It was absolutely so enlightening. Thank you for that reflection. And I have, well, with various topics or in-depth studies, there's always the question of who am I to talk about it or to give opinions or whatever. But even someone like Anne was having that doubt, I remember part of the interview where she was saying, well, I'm not a psychologist or a medical trained person. I quote unquote, only have my lived experience, but then she also now has that huge research and journalistic experience. So it's interesting how even those who I feel should be at the forefront in talking about things still have those levels of doubts. Also, I think a suicide is so layered and complex it's a topic we will return to as well so i'm just looking forward to continue these reflections and conversations uh, in coming episodes thank you everyone for listening take care of yourselves this january and for the coming year ahead thank you for listening to the deaf studies podcast you can find out more about our guests and their work in the show notes or on our website thedeafstudypodcast.com if you enjoyed listening to us, please leave us a comment, follow us on social media at the Deaf Podcast, and of course, spread the word.